Hey friends, we're here with our sixth episode of the season. Um, we only have a few episodes left before we take a much needed breather in January. Um, I know that uh, we are so thankful for the support that we're receiving from folks, um, whether it's feedback that we're getting on the podcast or whether it's financial support through our Patreon or whether you are Laurel Chen managing our social media platforms, um, or B. Russellberg, who is helping us produce these episodes, um, thank you so much. And that's, you know, all of the support is that we're having on our back end is really only possible because of our supporters on Patreon. I know that it's Giving Tuesday week. I know that we're going to get lots of emails and lots of asks for money, um, but we got to make those asks um, in order to sustain our, our, our work, um, whether it's movement work, uh, whether it's a podcast, political education. Um, and so, yeah, anybody can support from a dollar per month and up. It really does make a huge difference in our capacity to make this podcast happen. Um, yeah. Yeah, I remember when we sat down to talk about possibly doing a, a season this year, it was like only if we have people who can do social media and edit for us because it is so much work and Laurel and B do a phenomenal job uh, and we really want to be able to continue to have that extra support and that's going to depend on, quite frankly, us having Patreon supporters. Also, it has all these cool perks so at that even I don't have access to. So there's, for example, I forget what the, the which tier has which, but there's like a dope tote bag. There's a t-shirt. And my favorite is this mug with this incredible, super cute drawing on it with like the most beautiful people I've ever seen. Anyways, uh, definitely, definitely uh, encourage folks to become a patron, a patron, excuse me, if you want to keep hearing this podcast next year. Um, we believe it's an important resource and I'm, I'm excited to keep making this happen. I also recognize that this is a very chaotic time for a lot of people and Patreon, the way it works is you sign up for monthly uh, monthly donations of you know a dollar or more and if it's easier and you want to just do a one-time thing you also could totally make a donation to us through paypal so it's lit podcast so that's paypal.me slash lit podcast and we'll make sure that makes it into the the social media and all the things of, of this episode uh yeah so please thank you for your support thank you for sharing thank you for listening all of that is it makes my heart really warm Yes, I always forget about our PayPal. Um, folks have been really generous in the past um, before I got super obsessed with our Patreon. Um, we are super excited to share this conversation with uh, Vivi Moreno um, on the super strong um, black and indigenous people of color farming legacy of the food systems that we have now. Um, and Vivi, uh, she farms with many other queer, trans, and gender nonconforming uh, BIPOC farmers in South Chicago, actually, where I was born and raised. It's really cool to see their farm it's called Catatumbo Farms check it out support them online um, but yeah what did you think of this conversation Paige because I know you were totally geeking out and excited about it I believe literally when you said what book Vivi had chosen my exact words were ah but times like another 10 seconds uh yeah I um I, I adored this conversation. I easily could have talked to Vivi for another two hours. Uh, if folks don't know, I actually moved to Chicago to work with a project that doesn't exist anymore called Growing Power and, and was doing uh, doing gardens around Chicago um, in Cabrini and Alt Hill Gardens. And that was what I saw myself really doing with my life was, was growing food. Um, and Chicago, the past 10 years that I've lived here has... I've sort of come full circle in a lot of ways and spend a lot of my time thinking about the relationship and connections between abolition and how we grow food. One of my favorite things about it is, number one, it expands the understanding of the black freedom struggle and the civil rights movement to include the roles and the work and the contributions of particularly southern black farmers and the organizations that they built. Um, and I, I love talking about it with Vivi because she, she has an incredible memory for a lot of the details of it and specific stories. Um, and, and when she's nerding out about, um, I think it was George Washington Carver and then also Fannie Lou. Anyways, I love those moments. Um, she also had this sweet moment where she was blasting permaculture, which is not a bad thing, but it's, it, there's all these 
trendy th- words and and uh, and certifications and all kinds of programs now that white people have created that really just name and teach you in indigenous and ancestral practices. And so um, I, I there were a bunch of moments where the 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 gardener and the farmer in me just really appreciated the the specific ways that Vivi does her work and and talks about farming um, and ties it back to land. Um, and I think that I know I'm, I'm going on for a, a bit, but I, I do want to say as we were talking, one of the things that came up for me a lot that's been, I feel like coming up a lot throughout this season is the challenge um, that comes with talking about land as a black person, right? And and as and as in conversation with other folks who are also not indigenous to the lands that we live on. Um, and so I think that, yeah, I want to be upfront and real about how I feel like there is this absence and this this um, a limit to the conversation that we can have. I think it was a rich conversation. I loved it. I learned a lot. I think about this stuff all the time. I am craving space to talk about it in community as as a BIPOC community. Um, and that and just want to be real that that didn't happen on this this episode and hasn't happened in this season. Uh, but I, I do think that there it's really important. Um, so that I don't know. What about you? What did you think of this conversation? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I appreciate you naming that. And it it yeah, the absence of people in a room and when we have these conversations is bringing up a lot for me in terms of like, oh my God, are we doing this wrong? But I think what is actually happening is that we're, I think we're just more, we're just more aware and we're having, and by having these conversations, right, to acknowledge who is missing in the room. Um, so yeah, and what is also really sticking out for me in my head with this conversation with Vivi is just how much the narrative is being flipped for me around the relationship to land, right? Especially for black people and how it is often seen or talked about as the site of pain and oppression, but never as the site of liberation and resistance, um, which it was for many black farmers in the South, as this book points out. And at one point, Vivi says, you know, the land was never the perpetrator, but it was used as a tool. And that stuck out for me a lot, and I'm thinking about it still, and the ways that land has just been used against BIPOC folks to divide us and to conquer us and to, and to you know, enslave people. And so I think it's just important uh, to, ha- to, to be part of these conversations and to, um, so I'm just really excited we had Vivi on. Um, so anyways, tune in to this chat and then show some love to the black, Latinx and indigenous farmers and gardeners in your life. You're listening to the Lit Review Podcast. We're your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad. I think it's essential for people to learn together in order to be able to understand what we're up against. We must disrupt, we must disobey, we must agitate, we must escalate, we must break, we must create, we must abolish, we must transform. I remember it. She was shocked by my help. In sharing our ideas, we're stronger. Welcome to Chicago, this is home for most. This is the home of the wealthy making cameos. This is the house of the heartless, the home of the cold. Man, my dog is more acknowledgement than homeless folks. This is the house of generations caged I cannot emphasize enough how excited I am to talk to our guests, to hear about this book. I'm so stoked. Welcome, Vivi, to the Lit Review. Uh, can you tell us who are you, what do you do, and why? Hi, uh, my name is Vivi Moreno. Um, I am a food justice organizer uh, with the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization, and I'm also a new or emerging urban farmer with Catatumbo Cooperative Farm, and I'm a very honored member of Colectiva Oculima, and we are a, a, a collective, a support group of trans, gender nonconforming, and women BIPOC-led uh, urban farms in Chicago. And what what do I do? I like to farm. I like animals. I like insects a lot. I like to think in ecological systems. And ideally for that thought to be translated into the way that I organize and that I form my relationships, intimate and then larger circles. And then why? I think what I'm doing is a return to a calling that probably started before I was born. 
I think I'm returning to something that's very ancestral, that's very deep, that's very spiritual, deeply emotional, uh, which is to connect with the land um, as a way to find a sense of home, given that I am a guest in this country and that I haven't been able to go back to my home in a long time. Um, and I think connected to land and connected to, to nature and natural system has been a really beautiful way to honor um, the place that has hosted me for a long time here. That's beautiful. Thank you, Vivi. I'm so excited for you to be on the show. I'm really happy to be in conversation with you today. Um, the book we're talking about is called Freedom Farmers, Agricultural Resistance and the Black Freedom Movement by Dr. Monica M. White. And it was actually published just last year uh, in 2019 by the University of uh, North Carolina Press. Um, yeah, and so this book really struck me because we hear a lot about the ways that song and chants, right? And we don't really hear a lot about the farming and the agriculture and the role that that sort of urban resistance um, played in the civil rights movement. So can you tell us why it was important for you to read a book about the role of farmers during the civil rights movement? Yeah, I think that it's really interesting because um, a few years ago, I would say last year, two years ago, um, we were still very, very young farmers. We still are. Uh, we were kind of hungry for any material whatsoever that spoke of the really strong farming legacy that Black folks, Latinx folks, Filipinx folks, Native folks have had in the United States, because I know that that really is the foundation of the food system that we have right now. Um, and it's interestingly, I went on like a weird thread online and then I saw like, oh, there's a book coming about to be published called Freedom Farmers. And I was like, what is this book? And then I read what it was about and it hadn't even been published, but I went to the university and you could actually subscribe to get an alert to when the, the book got released. Um, and then I was like, oh my God, I must read this. Who is this person? This sounds amazing. And then last year, actually, no, this year, um, I was attending the Chicago Food Policy Action Council, the yearly food policy, the food, the food summit in Chicago, um, which I've been attending for the past three, four years, pretty religiously. It's been a really beautiful space to build with other BIPOC farmers. And the keynote speaker was Dr. Monica White. And I was like, oh my God, this is perfect. So I was just like being a really ridiculous fan. I was just like, just watching every, just holding on to every word that she said. And then um, had a, just had the honor to just, she was signing books at the end. And so I'm showing this to the camera. Definitely have a signed copy, which I'm definitely like really braggy about, which is really beautiful. And I, I just really, the dedication just, just says for those who, who feed our bodies and our souls. And I'm like, yes. And so that's how I feel like I've been following this book for a long time. And then it finally, it finally got, got to my house. So I'm really, really excited about it. Um, I think that as an immigrant farmer, I think very much approaching urban agriculture from an immigrant framework. I think it's not only imperative, but incredibly enriching to learn specifically from Black, Indigenous, and people of color contributions to farming and agriculture in this country. Um, in the case of Freedom Farmers, they focus specifically on Black farmers for liberation. And it quite literally is an affirmation to know that the community dreams we have now for establishing immigrant-led worker cooperative farms in Little Village and with Catatumbo Cooperative Farm, have actually, they, are, they have a track record in the United States, specifically located in, in Black Southern organizing. Um, everything from farming cooperatives as a community wealth building practice to sustainable farming practices that enrich our soils. And consequently, our bodies also have like roots, like all, all of these practices that we do now that we call permaculture or sustainable farming, they really have roots a, from black scientists, black farming scientists in the South and visionaries who were doing this less than 200 years ago, but, but whose stories we don't really hear often. In the five plus years that I've been doing this work, the main, the main lesson I've learned is that this work simply has never stopped. As we come to this work and it feels new, it has such a strong legacy and it has such a strong history, but it's very, very, very hidden. You know, I feel like it's been transformed uh, through the times, but the same practices of Looking at agriculture as a strategy for liberation has never stopped. That, that lesson, that framework has never really stopped. I'm definitely a fan of jumping towards like creative ideas of working the soil as a community, but also it is like, I think it's so ex exciting to learn that everything we want to do right now as Catatumbo has been done before. 
And I think it helps us because sometimes it feels so daunting and so impossible to think of acquiring land collectively and bringing a bunch of families to live together and creating jobs and creating health centers, all based in agriculture. All of it has been done before numerous times by black farmers in tremendous numbers. I've been believing for a while that farming and returning to reciprocal relationships to land can be valuable to our collective liberation as uh, black, indigenous and people of color. Um, it's difficult to see it sometimes because a plant takes a lot longer to grow than it takes to just leave the house and march in the streets, right? And this book confirms to me that Black farmers have always worked with the land to liberate themselves, to become autonomous, nourish, and build dignified lives for the communities, which is at the end of the day what we want to do in our communities here in Chicago, too. I know for me, I... Um So I I grew up in like a white farming community in rural Vermont and uh, got really interested in in growing food, especially as I got older. And and that was what brought me to Chicago originally about 10 years ago. And but it wasn't until I was maybe 21 that I learned I knew who Fannie Lou Hamer was, but I didn't know about like the 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 pig cooperative. Right. And and for me, so much of the ways that I had been taught about the relationship between black people and farming was only that it was a site of oppression for black people. And uh, and it's been very I've been very slowly been able to find more stories and his and the history that you're speaking to of like actually this has been a site of resistance right and a site of revolt and and it's a part of our of our history and it's a part of how, and how we move forward and how we live right now and so I I when I heard about this book I was freaking out uh, it hasn't made its way to me quite yet. Even it was ordered, but didn't didn't arrive. Um, and I'm really excited to hear you kind of break it down, though, because yeah, th- this is stuff that I'm no pun intended, but very hungry for. And I think I'm hearing more and more folks are excited to to learn about these histories, and to apply it to today. So can you start telling us a little bit more about what is this book about? What are the messages the author's trying to emphasize? What are the histories? Yeah, I think something you said reminded me of a quote from just as. A gathering that we had with Leah Penniman from Soul Fire Farm in upstate New York, a black-led, really beautiful, revolutionary farm where I think was the, definitely the catalyst point of Catatumbo. That's where we were formed ideologically, uh, uh, I would say even practically, just because they taught us a lot of farming there and, and spiritually too. It was Leah that sat us together and was like, "Why? what's stopping you? And something that she said was that black folks, native folks, and, and now undocumented immigrants that are that continue to work in really, really deplorable conditions um, that are growing our food, is that eventually with the generations, there, there's, there's an aversion to land and to land work. And there's a teaching to the newer generations, you don't want to do this work just because it, it, it represents so much pain. But she's like, the land was never the perpetrator, but it was used as a tool. Um, and she's like, just remember that as, mu- as much as it, it has been the site of pain, it's not the source of pain. Um, and I think that what a lot of what this book brings is a different narrative that not only has it been a side of pain, but while it was being a side of pain, it was also a side of liberation. People were really thinking about ways to liberate themselves, to free themselves, to feed themselves as they were working the land, as they were forced to work the lands. They were ready. They were having secret gardens. They were like planting things on the side. They were bartering vegetables that they couldn't get from slave owners, right? So they were, they were already using, like, like working with the land in a very strategic way to stay alive. And I think there's a few really valuable lessons that this book has that I think opened up my eyes when I think about the history of the civil rights movement. Um, I learned very recently, actually, that, that farmers were really crucial in, in supporting the Freedom Riders as they went to the South and were trying to get people to, um, to get to vote. And it kind of it stayed there, right? And then what this book taught me is that the farmers were also crucial in getting them out of jail because they were putting up their land to pay, to pay for them to get out of jail. And in reality, a lot of, the, a lot of the, the farming that was happening in the South, the resistance farming, was actually feeding a lot of folks in the Midwest. And a lot of folks don't know that. So people that had recently migrated to, to Chicago, to Michigan, which is really beautiful. And it's actually something else that I've, I've heard from young farmers of color that are living in the Midwest. They're like, how can we make a connection to the South? How can we make it so the so-called food deserts, which are really food apartheid zones, 
in the Midwest can be addressed by the farmers in the South that are still growing food. And then there's something, there's a, a term there that I learned through her that, um, that a lot of the farmers were, uh, were doing through cooperatives, which is, I think it's called prefigurative politics, which is folks that were being completely left out of, of, of political participation, were able to practice democracy and decision-making and political education through forming the, uh, cooperatives, because the, technically the whole premise of cooperatives is one person, one vote, every single one must count. Actually, sharecroppers and tenant farmers would be fired and kicked out of their lands if they actually registered to vote or if they chose to join any, any of these cooperatives. They were being punished for it. And with that came starvation, literally homelessness, because, because of wanting to be part of, of, of a political process. Cooperatives was a way for people to practice democracy in a safer environment uh, that was also invested in political education of people, regardless of where they were at, um, I guess, economically, et cetera, et cetera, right? So she really keeps talking about cooperative building and agricultural spaces as a way where people could still practice voting and could still practice making decisions and practice having their voices heard and organizing around specific campaigns um, as a way to still to still getting things moving and, have, and getting resources that they needed desperately. So when I was skimming through, I... There was one particular story that popped stood out to me about the uh, farmers that took over an Air Force base and were occupying it and saying, you know, this is this is, you know, federal uh, a federal place like paid for by the people here. We uh, we want land, we want food, we want medicine, right? All of these things, and I I just hadn't known about that and the connection between you know militarism, agriculture, all of these things. And I'm wondering if you could share examples of campaigns or actions or, or other stories that stood out to you when you were reading through it. There was a, a cotton strike, a cotton picker strike. Um, I believe in Texas. I may be wrong, but it may be somewhere in the Southwest where farm workers were, specifically black farm workers, were striking for better wages and better living conditions. And I'm like, we never ever hear these stories, right? Like, I feel like when we, they, I feel like there is an erasure and there continues to be an erasure as we talk about farm workers now that it's like, yo, it's like black folks have been doing this for a long time. Filipino folks have been doing this for a long time. And to me, I was like, wow, like farming strikes have been happening for over 100 years. And so I feel like that's a story that, st that stands out to me because I'm like, I never, when I, as I've been learning about just like farm worker resistance now, as it looks like in Latin America, as it looks like just in different parts of the United States, in the dairy industry in the United States, and with the Immokalee workers down in, in Florida, I still never hear that as a recalling of, of just like grabbing that history and, and learning from it, right? It wasn't just the, the Delano workers. Like, they weren't the first ones to do it. The, the, the grape strike wasn't the first one to happen. Um, and I thought, that was really, I, I thought that was really powerful. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about, there's, I know there's a chapter in there on, on Fannie Lou Hamer, um, who in the 1960s launched the, the Freedom Farms Cooperative uh, in the Mississippi Delta. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I love Fannie Lou Hamer so much. <laughs> I, they are the things that she was able to do which a lot of folks call an experiment because it was relatively short-lived, unfortunately. Um, I think it was still crucial. I, I, one of the things that I want to start with is that what we hear about Fannie Lou is a lot of the, her work around, uh, around the right to vote in the South, which is very true, very crucial. What a lot of folks don't talk about is that she was centering a lot of that work through agriculture and through cooperative living and through specifically acquiring land collectively. That's where a lot of that, the meat of that work happened. She grew up a farmer. Um, Fannie Lou went through a lot. I feel like when I, lear when I learned a little bit of, of just about what she went through, she was forcibly sterilized, um, which reminds me of what's happening to undocumented people now. One of the times that she was jailed for, for marching and for demanding the right to vote, she, was, she ended up being just, you know, just beat up. The, the Freedom Farm, actually, shout out, I want to give a shout out to my homie Dallas, who has a farm in North Carolina called the Harriet Tubman Freedom Farm, which is, a, a, she, this, they specifically named it to honor Harriet Tubman, but specifically to honor uh, Fannie Lou Hamer's uh, Freedom Farm in Mississippi. Um, the impact that it had was amazing. Uh, not only was it, a farm where people could farm collectively. They also ended up having a housing, like housing units. I think around 
70 or 60 families ended up being able to live in that place. And so I, I also want to think about how multifaceted agricultural-based liberation work can be. I feel like very few farmers that I know only think about farmers is always connected to how's the environment affecting us? Do our people, okay, you can grow food, but are you, do you have a house to live in? How's your health? How's your education? They had educational, they had, they had a few educa like educational centers. I would say Fannie Lou Hamer is one of the only like women that are really brought up uh, that, are, that are highlighted doing this work. I would love to, like, I would love to shout out Ms. Shirley, Shirley Sherrod, founder of New Communities. He was the first uh, agricultural land trust in the United States, and it was the biggest Black-led land trust in the United States. They founded New Communities. They had thousands of acres. They said that they had as much land as the state of Rhode Island, and they completely lost it. It was, it was, it was a combination of lawsuits, straight up the government just taking land, but something really beautiful and amazing happened. They now acquire land in they call it Albany, not Albany, Albany, Georgia, called Resora, which happens to formerly belong to one of the largest slave, uh, slave owners in Georgia. Now they own this land um, and they have this sign in front, of the, in front of the farm that says, like, formerly owned by slave owners, now now controlled by enslaved descendants or those descendants of slaves. So there, there was this analysis, I was reading this article, there was this analysis found last year that between... 1910 and 2007, black farmers lost about 80% of their farmland, right? And so, and that was a lot of it was because they didn't have access to loans and they didn't have uh, insurance to maintain their, their land and their business. And that makes me think about how important initiatives like Soul Fire Farm, you know, are and the Harriet Tubman Freedom Farm and, and Fresher Together here in Chicago and, and other black-led food and land justice orgs, you know, and I, and I hope folks really start to acknowledge this and, and pay attention to this work uh, way more um, right now. But that, so that, you know, it takes me to my next question, uh, back to the book, is like, how did black farmers in the Deep South and then farmers in Detroit, like how did they unite to fight the systemic racism together in, in, in the book? I think a lot of that was folks being forced off the land and having to migrate, right? So a lot of the, actually if you, I live in Englewood currently and a lot of the folks, a lot of my neighbors, including my partner, they all, all their roots are in, in, in the South. All their great grandmothers are from the South. Um, and so I, I would like to think, I mean, I can't speak, for, for black folks, but I would like to say that there's, there's a, I think Malik Yakini from Black Community Food Security Network in Detroit better say, he says it like, what is it, up south, down, down south, up south, meaning the Midwest is very much still a southern hub for folks. And I think that's, that's, that's one way, as a person that, that's witnessing the, just the southern culture that exists in the Midwest, specifically around agriculture, I think those lessons never really left. I think there definitely was a resistance uh, a lot of the a lot of the the reason why folks stayed in the south was because they didn't want to be forced to move to the north. A lot of them ended up feeding a lot of folks to the north. But then when the civil rights movement started and people started organizing around the the right to vote, a lot of those same folks organizing in the north went to the south, right back to right back to the roots, right back to the families, right, uh, and and they ended up becoming just like creating that really beautiful relationship. And like I mentioned before. Farmers were really crucial in making sure those folks made it safely and made it alive and made it back. From my understanding, the first part of the book is talking about some of the Black intellectual traditions of agriculture. Can you walk us through some of the ideas and highlights of that section? I like to always go to permaculture. People get quote-unquote certifica certifications in permaculture, which to me really is indigenous farming practices and thinking in systems which really means thinking of natural systems and making sure that you're not interrupting those systems too much. And, and there is obviously the theory is that you would yield uh, more food, your soul will be a lot healthier if you work with the natural cycles, something that indigenous people have been practicing for a long, long, long time, and definitely a practice that black farmers did in the South. Um, and continue to do. So I think it's funny when people say I, permaculture, I definitely side-eye folks a little bit because it sounds really trendy, but I'm like, it really is indigenous farming practices. Mm -hmm. That's really what it is. And pay, literally paying attention to the wind patterns, paying attention to where the bird comes, like paying attention to how, how are your food, you know, how's your food growing? Are there worms in the soil? Like that really is what it is. And then going back to George Washington Carver, 
I am such a fan, such a fan. He really was a genius. Um, and really, I think more than that, he was such a grassroots organizer. And that's what I loved about him. A lot of people know him as the inventor of peanut butter. Cool, beautiful, delicious. But also a lot of folks don't know of like his, his studies on, on, the, on legumes, right? Which peanuts are legumes. And, and cowpeas as a way to heal the soil as nitrogen fixers. A lot of his work was around soil biology because, and again, specifically talking about the main thing that folks were growing were cotton and corn and cash crops because that was literally the only thing that people would buy from them. And that means that for folks that were both tenant farmers and sharecroppers, it really, like the best way for them to make, to, to, to make any money, to make a living, was to grow every single bit of land that they had access to and, make, and grow cash crops of cotton and, and corn, which it, like deplete the soil tremendously. And because of that, they didn't really have a lot of space to grow their own food. And so interestingly, and also very similarly to, to farm workers now, they, as, even though they were growing all these cash crops, they were some of the more malnourished people because they didn't have access to fresh food. Very, it's very, very similar to farm workers now in the United States. They're usually the folks that have the least access to fresh, healthy food. The system of slavery that depleted people of their lives, depleted the soil so much, is such an extractive system throughout, right? And soil depletion, land depletion, and extracted from people go hand in hand. I think that that's one of the things that really helped me see farming differently. It's like if we are not treating the soil and the land in a reciprocal relationship that we're not we're really we're really replicating the same systems right uh, booker t washington founder of tuskegee a lot of people have their conflicted thoughts about him i know again i'm, I'm i always farmer and a dreamer than like a like super organizer but i like the practices right and I like tactics and something that he did before he founded the university he literally traveled from town to town all over the south and started asking farmers what support do you need you know and people would be like i need medicine, my livestock is sick, my soil is poor, I can't, I don't, my seeds are not growing. And he created an entire institute and curriculum based on what these farmers need. Not only were they teaching folks about agriculture, they were teaching about masonry, carpentry. I think something around 60, the book says something like, out of the 60 buildings that made up or that make up Tuskegee University, only four weren't built by their own students. So they build their own buildings and the bricks that they used for the buildings were also made by themselves. More on the intellectual side, Booker T. Washington definitely did the institutional kind of build out. Uh, George Washington Carver kind of did the scientific inte like intellect and in that, in that, and I think that that's how he fed the movement. Uh, W.E.B. Duwai, I think a lot of, the, a lot of the, the things that he focused on were cooperatives as an economic system, as a resistance to capitalism, and as a way to organize. Um, I, the book says that he might, he, I, I wouldn't say he might, that he was one of the founders of sociology in the United States and was never recognized for doing so. He did one of the first ethnographic studies specifically on the Black rural South. Um, one of those studies was actually completely destroyed, so folks have no access to it. And so it really is, I, I think he does offer a lot of, a lot of wealth on, on why cooperatives are, are necessary. Um, Something else I'm realizing, I'm like, why don't I hear W.E.B. Duwa's name when we talk about the long history of cooperativism in the United States? Like he was a crucial, like crucial, just he would argue so much for it as a tool for liberation. And I'm a little bit upset that that is not part of, there's so much cooperative education now. I love it draws on, on indigenous cooperatives in Latin America, which have been ongoing, are still ongoing. But what happens to what, what was happening in the South? Vivi, I think we met maybe seven, eight years ago uh, at a summer workshop series that was exploring the PIC and abolition. And I know since then, we've both been involved in many campaigns and efforts in this, this broader movement for abolition. And this summer, I was spending... Uh, more time than I have in the past, in the last eight years, um, working in the garden that Asada's daughters had. So I, I was I managed the the community garden and was you know every day going out and being grounded and thinking about 
uh, my relationship to, to the land and the plants and, and, and how to affect an ecosystem, um, but also surrounded by neighbors and all the things that were going on this summer. And there, there was a lot. Uh, and so it was, for me, a really interesting summer that I think more than before, I, I have been thinking about the connections and relationship between abolition and agriculture, the relationship between ourselves and the land and ourselves as, as a community. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could spend some time just talking about what those, what connections you see and the ways that you think about growing food in, as a part of the movement for abolition. One of the frameworks that W.E.B. Dubois was talking about was when we think of resiliency, we think of just like a fight against or like resisting, resisting, resisting. And she's trying to frame it as creation, right? So why can't we think about resilience as not only resisting harm and resisting, uh, and resisting oppression, but also creating new systems at the same time? And I think that that's what, and I feel like that's how I'd like to address the issue, you know, not the issue, but like the question of abolition is, what are we creating at the same time? That as we are trying really, really, really hard to dismantle these horrible, messed up, fucked up ass systems, the systems of policing, of extraction of our land, of our people, which continue to happen. There are people currently creating alternative systems now. And that, that process has never stopped. This, as they were honestly, quite, quite honestly, occupying land, demanding that their foods be funded, constructing schools as their schools we, be, were being burned down, really fighting and dismantling a whole system as they were creating a new one. I just think of, of, of agriculture and, and, and cooperatives as creation, as, a, as, a, as an abolitionist practice, and as a result of, of just all the really dehumanizing conditions that were, not in, that were really invested in people starving. The only choices people had were you either worked for, in almost slave-like conditions after slavery, um, or you starved. Because if you try... To, to live any other way, then you were punished for it. So th those were the only two things. So I think that, uh, that the, the creation of, of cooperatives, that, which by the way, were not only like one farm and multiple people. Sometimes I would, like to, I would also like to shout out the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, which is a cooperative of cooperatives, right? They, had, they literally had cooperative. It, it was a, a group of cooperatives along uh, the Black Belt South, which I learned recently that it was called that because of the color of the soil, which I think is really beautiful. People were really, really trying really hard to create completely new systems to try to dismantle the ones that they were living under because they had no other choice. It was either that or, or death. And it really became to that. It really came to that for a lot of folks too. I, yeah, I love that answer. And actually what you're describing to me sounds like people were practicing food sovereignty would you say that that is what farmers were working towards in Monica's book, or would you say that it was different? Oh, I absolutely, absolutely. I mean, they were quite literally fighting for uh, stewardship of the land. Can you um, define sort of what food sovereignty is and like how that manifested throughout this book? The term food sovereignty really is uh, food autonomy, right? It's not only the right to access uh, to have access to healthy, uh, culturally significant foods, but also the right to steward land in whatever ancestral traditions folks may have, the right to work that land free of violence, free of extraction, free of intervention from outside governments and private companies. Uh, it's also the right specifically for uh, women and femmes to work the land free of misogyny, free of violence, um, and it really encompasses the right of workers. And I think the main, the main kind of like lesson is the land should belong to those who work it. Um, and I think, because you could always say, you know, oh yes, I have organic food, but also can you, do you have a say in how this land is stewarded? Like, can you, can you cover crop it? Can you choose, can you let the land go follow, which is just letting the land 
be so so they so it can regenerate you know what i mean can you have spiritual connections and spiritual practice connect you know connected to that land and that really is what food sovereignty encompasses is really land autonomy i always like to say there's you know it's really important to always think beyond access always people think access we gotta have access to land access to food i'm like you can have access all you want but if you don't have stewardship autonomous stewardship i don't like to say control because the land doesn't like that But if you don't have autonomous stewardship of a specific portion of land, then, you know, that access can be, it always has a limit because you're not, you and your community are not the ones actually making decisions over that space. And I think that that's what food sovereignty really gets to is autonomous stewardship of lands in a very, in a culturally significant way that respects that every single nation and community has their own ways of growing food and feeding themselves and nurturing themselves. A part of me is, is, And maybe this is where I want to, I know we don't have a ton more time, but I'm thinking about, you know, here in Chicago, how Lori Lightfoot has upped the cost of accessing the fire hydrant, right? Which a lot of community gardens um, need in order to, to water um, I'm thinking about stories of, of people who are getting sued and, and charged for growing food, trying to grow food on their land the, the way that they want to, whether they're backyard gardens or their farms that um, genetically engineered pollen has gone through the wind as it does and, and cross-pollinated, right? And now there are farmers that are being thrown with these massive world-shattering lawsuits, right? And just, I, I'm wondering if you can s- speak a little bit to the, the what some of the current struggles for food sovereignty look like in Chicago and, and around the world that you're excited by, that you find hope in. Um, I mean, I'd say definitely the uh, water access is, is, is huge right now. It makes me think about what would utilities as a commons look like in the future. I want to shout out uh, the Chicago Food Policy Action Council and Advocates for Urban Agriculture. They've been doing really tremendous policy work. I also think climate change is a huge issue. Perhaps we may, I, I would like to, I actually kind of see it in Chicago. I, would, I, I believe we had a bit, a bit of a dry period this year. I think that I'm seeing um, sometimes colder springs, right? So like the, sometimes the, the, the crops are taking a little bit longer. Uh, to grow uh, really, really rainy uh, instead of like May showers, we're having really, really intense April showers and then really, really dry periods in the, in the, in the summer. And I think what we're going to see is an increase in, in, in just, yeah, in, in just like a lack of rain during the summer, um, an increase in precipitation in the winter too. I think in the mid, I also want to talk about the Midwest too. I think we can concentrate on Chicago um, just in urban gardening, in, in urban farming. But I think it's important to address that the Midwest um, is a huge, huge perpetrator at the moment of a very unjust food system. It's a huge perpetrator of why our microclimate is the way that it is and why it's worsening, why floods are about to go up even more. I think this and last year, I don't know if you have heard about the thousands of like cattle that died as a result of like huge storms and, and huge floods. The reason it's flooding is because the soil is depleted of nutrient. It is not porous. So it becomes this sheet, this dead sheet where all the microbes that live at the top layer of the soil are completely dead from years and years of monocropping, chemical fertilizers, pesticides, et cetera, et cetera. All of that life is being killed. And so what, what, what the soil becomes is just this really compacted, carpet not even carpet just like just like almost cement where any water that comes through is not feeding the soil it's literally just pulling like on in a in a just food system you would see diversity that's really in i, I mean it, all of this in, in really like really beautiful terms also also translate to like the way the society should be ran and all of that but like we really need a diversity of crops we really need a lot just like just really sustainable cycles where the soil can feed themselves and i think that as much as I'm thinking about urban agriculture in Chicago, a lot of our dreams, our collective dreams as farmers in Chicago, land is almost, it's very hard to come by. One, if you do have access to a city lot, it's most likely contaminated. Chicago is basically a brownfield. Access to the land is, everybody's is fighting for land. Like you're literally fighting developers 
right? In some neighborhoods where you like that, where you want to put a garden, they want to put a huge, horrible, like just cement looking, just like box that looks like some upscale apartment. Um, so there isn't really a lot of land to grow on. And the little bit that is, there's like, there's like, there's a huge fight for that. So a lot of folks in Chicago, and I speak for myself as a farmer, but also from a lot of conversations I've had with, with, with other BIPOC farmers here, we dream of rural land, right? We dream of acquiring land collectively and, and growing sustainably. And sometimes in what's, you know, we still want to be connected to our home, to Chicago. So we think about, okay, maybe we go to Rockford. Maybe we go a little bit south, a little bit west. But everywhere we go, we will literally be surrounded by monocrops and that, you know, and like an aerial pesticide, right? So even if we grow sustainably, we still have, we still run the risk of having our crops just being sprayed over. And so I want to think, I want to talk about that because I, I would like to say a lot of us in Chicago are dreaming up and working towards what a lot of the farmers in the book and uh, Freedom Farmers actually did, right? Which is like acquiring land collectively, stewarding, stewarding it together building homes, raising families together. But it's so, so hard when not only do we not have the resources, but the little bit of land that's available has been depleted for so many years. Again, something that Dr. Monica White brings up in this book is the, there's a, there is a reemergence of, of farmers and, and this liberation farming movement happening in just in the United States, but in the Midwest, um, led by black farmers, right? And it's really important to look at the South, to look at the past. Also important to realize there are still farmers in the South. Yesterday I learned that the average age of a black farmer in the South is 68 years old. There is this desperate need to transfer land to younger farmers and, yo and younger folks that want to do this work for the long term to keep farm and families to, to not continue to lose land. And there's, there are so many beautiful people in the Midwest that are doing this work every single day. Uh, I could, I want, I do. I would like to shout out a few folks that I think are doing this work, thinking of cooperatives, thinking about of cooperative economics, thinking of of collective resistance. So definitely, the Black Community Food Security Network in Detroit is doing really wonderful work. Definitely, Urban Growers Collective here in Chicago, um, uh, Fresher Together, obviously, Shy Fresh Foods, Your Bountiful Harvest. Um, Multiple Harvest Farm, which a lot of folks haven't heard about, but they are part of Colectiva Oculima, and they, uh, they are led by amazing farmer and master beekeeper Beatrice Kamau, um, who spe specializes in African crops. And she is also part of this international collective of, of African women beekeepers, and she is amazing. So we have a wealth of knowledge. Uh, we have... We have a lot of the work is happening right now in the city. What makes me sometimes sad is that that work doesn't, is not mentioned along the same lines of social justice organizing as other movements. And perhaps it's deemed as completely separate, which when I think they, they, they make sense. I think that it, may, it makes sense to, to mention them alongside talking about police brutality because the same folks that are farming live in the neighborhoods that are being over-policed and live in the neighborhoods that don't have access to a lot of food, right? And I think my wish for why organizers um, should read this book, I think is because I, I, I found such a beautiful, resilient, and very, very well-resourced in terms of just knowledge, community and farming and and what I keep seeing is farming as a movement, environmental justice as a movement, caring for the land and working the land as a movement. To me, I still feel so alienated. If when I start focusing on that, I feel so alienated from the general kind of social justice organizing that happens in the, in the city. And my wish is for that to not be, and for people to really see us and see our work as also resistance work. It may look different because growing food takes longer, right? And feeding people sometimes takes a little bit longer. But that means it takes you that much time to build really long-lasting, just long-lasting relationships, right? And I, I do think that folks should be looking at agriculture and should be looking at the lessons of the South and should be looking at Detroit. Detroit is literally building a cooperative supermarket right now in a city where people, are, like there, there has been so much extraction, right? And so much white flight. There's literally a huge cooperative supermarket being built right now 
that will be led by black folks and black farmers. I'm like, that is huge. That is revolutionary. Why are we not talking about that? Right. Even in our relationships and the way that we, we build connection to nature and the way that we understand that everything really is interconnected and that we really are part of a system of a system that we can create. I'm like, we can offer so much. I would love, to, I would love it if folks could think about relationship building and organizing through an agricultural lens. Um, I'm really excited about your book club study group thing that is going to be happening about this book. I am so sad I did not see it in time, but it has inspired me to definitely read it in community um, over these next long, dark, <laughs> non-farming outside months. Um, so thank you so much for, for the work that you're doing and for sharing your thoughts on this book. But I have no more questions. Well, thank you so much for being on our show uh, today, Vivi. And a personal thank you for uh, to Catatumbo uh, Farms for feeding me this summer. Y'all had your first experiment with uh, having a CSA. And, um, you know, in all seriousness, it nourished me this summer. It was a hard summer for many of us. And so that, that weekly nourishment um, was so... Um, uh, beneficial for, for, for me. And I super appreciate y'all for growing food for the movement basically in Chicago. Um, so again, for, for folks listening, uh, pick up this book at your local independent bookstore right now. Uh, it's called Freedom Farmers, Agricultural Resistance and the Black Freedom Movement by Dr. Monica M. White. Um, we like to close out each episode with a passage from the book that really resonated with the guests. So Vivi, can you read us something from the book to close us out? The oppression of slavery, land tenancy, and sharecropping is but one part of the story. These three wise men, specifically talking about Booker T. Washington, uh, George Washington Carver, and W.B. Dubois, laid the foundation for an important counter-narrative. Along with the many farmers and practitioners who worked, who worked alongside them, they developed an, an important theory and practice of a distinctly African-American agriculture that was nourished in autonomous institutional spaces but has gone on to inform agriculture more broadly. Together, the intellectual traditions of black agriculture provide a framework that emphasizes the connection between agriculture and freedom. This framework has, has value for urban farmers and gardeners today who are reconnecting with the soil as a strategy of self-determination and self-sufficiency. These black intellectual traditions pave the way for current conversations about sustainable, organic, and local food, as well as food security and food sovereignty. They challenge the idea that community agriculture is something new and capture the radical components of the collective and the cooperative strategies that communities use to rebuild themselves using food production and distribution as strategies. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books to help grow our movement. We are your co-hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May, two Chicago-based abolitionist organizers. We'll be back next week with another episode next Sunday. Same time, same place. Want to learn about a specific book? Email us your suggestions at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And if you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at litreviewshy. Financial support for the production of this podcast is thanks to our amazing Patreon subscribers. Learn more about becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thelitreview. Keep reading. <laughs>